0: Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. Okay, now if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, would you stand with me? And I will read verses 1 down through verse 13. Remember in our study of 1 Corinthians, we come now to chapter 8. We leave Paul's discussion about sexual issues. We leave the conversation about marriage. And now we talk about food offered to idols. I know something each of you have been wondering about all week long. But let's listen to the text and let's apply it to our hearts because it indeed does apply to us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat foods as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. How are we to decide about issues that are not directly addressed in Scripture. Don't turn your Bible into a magnifying glass when it's meant to be a telescope. God's Word doesn't take small things and make them big like a microscope, but like a telescope, God's Word takes massively huge things and makes them small so that you can see just how massive they are. In seeing the massively beautiful holiness of God, as followers of Jesus the Messiah, we make even the smallest decisions from a radically and completely new orientation. Because the Bible says that you, if you are in Christ, are no longer a slave to sin. You have a new reference point. You are a daughter, you are a son of God. By faith in him, a transfer of status has happened. Galatians 4 says, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? That's a good question. I must be reminded of this every week because I need the gospel now more than ever. And we need to consistently remember that Christians are not necessarily better people, they are forgiven people. And Christians therefore make decisions from a completely different reference point. Than from the world. So let's get practical. Still reflecting on the theology of the body, Paul in 1 Corinthians moves from answering the Corinthians' questions about sexuality to talking about food specifically food offered to idols. And in Paul's day, the, the 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 priests of the pagan temples would often have a side hustle after they would sacrifice an animal to their gods. The the the, the gods would take a piece of the animal, the priests would often eat a piece of the animal and and there would be pieces of the animal left over and the priests would often make a side hustle out of being butchers and selling the parts of the animal in the open market in the public square. And they would also make a side hustle by using the temple dining rooms as a kind of public rental space for people. So trade guilds and and merchants and and large families that were prominent could, could use the temple dining room for various feasts. And so it was very, very common to have private parties in the temple dining room eating food that was left over from idol sacrifices. And this issue guides the conversation for the next few chapters. Food offered to idols may seem extremely remote to us today. But Paul gives us a principle in verses 2 and 3 that guides us on issues where Scripture doesn't directly teach, doesn't directly address. And so this week, I sent a little survey out to, to some of you, and I said, okay, what are the questions that you might ask Paul (laughs) what would you ask Paul like what is an issue that scripture does not directly address with which you struggle what would you say like take a minute this isn't rhetorical like take a minute think about it and if you have a pen just write it on your bulletin somewhere list them out Here are some questions I heard this week. Should I drink alcoholic beverages or not? Should I allow my child to do competitive sports on a Sunday morning or not? Should I go to my gay cousin's wedding or not? Should I support the protest downtown or not? What would you add? I mean, these are real issues, right? We're not talking about food offered to idols. What what would you ask the Apostle Paul if he were writing you a letter today? How are we to navigate these issues? Paul gives us a principle that is incredibly practical. And it's in your bulletin, but write it down if you're a thinker who remembers by writing. Here it is. Here's the principle. In issues where the conscience is free, love, not knowledge, must lead. In issues where the conscience is free, love, not knowledge, must lead. So let's go to God's Word and let's understand what we mean by these terms. We go to God's Word to learn and to worship. And Paul starts out in this text and he says, now concerning food offered to idols. He says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. It's his opening reaction to their question. Like he is presumably echoing the Corinthians assertion that the way to deal with this issue was on the basis of what everybody knows. And what does everybody in Corinth know? Well, he says it in verse four. We know that an idol has no real existence. And Paul doesn't deny that. He he's already said that you as a as a Christian in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, you are enriched with all knowledge. And so the dispute in 1 Corinthians 8 is not what the Corinthians know about knowledge, but to make them aware of how they are using that knowledge in the real issues of life. For the real issue is, verse 1b, that knowledge puffs up, but, notice the contrast, love builds up. It's an architectural term for constructing something beautiful. And by introducing the idea of love and the discussion, he trades a microscope for the telescope, and he dramatically shifts the focus. in in our In our world today, it is very common to say that knowledge is power. That's why there's so much emphasis placed on education in our world today. But that is not a biblical proverb. Knowledge alone simply inflates its possessor because it separates them from others who are in the know from those who are not in the know. And it provides the knowledgeable one a perceived advantage of those who are not as educated or in the loop as others. And people who are knowledgeable are tempted to use their knowledge as a way of looking down their nose at others And it's not just with knowledge. You can fill in the blank. You can use it for the... How much you, how much you have, have, have done uh, out in the field, the size of the size of trophy box you've brought in. You could do it in the size of the size of uh, of your nest egg that you've developed, even though you didn't have much of an education. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, it, it can be any number of things that you use to kind of create a, a perceived sense of self righteousness in your in your life. And. I, Being a pastor of a reformed church has huge liabilities, friends. (laughs) Like, people who come to understand the beauty of the grace of God are just amazingly. Shocked by how big his grace really is, but some people who love to learn about Calvinism and they love to learn about the five points of the, the tulip and they love to learn about the Westminster Confession of Faith and they love to learn about all this stuff and they begin to use it as, as like a hammer to remind people that oh well when you when you come more mature in your in your relationship with jesus you 'll be able to memorize the catechism like me and when you when you do this or that, and it 's just ugly. Don't do that. The more you know about the Lord Jesus Christ, the larger the circumference of your knowledge becomes, then the bigger that circle grows. And the bigger that circle grows, that circle is awe and humility. So, as your circumference gets bigger in what you learn, your humility ought to grow. I mean, you can ask any, any, there are several PhDs in the room, and you can ask any of these PhDs, that award is an amazing achievement. But the questions they have now are probably even greater than the questions they started out with. Your awe and wonder grows the more that you learn and the more that you know about Scripture, the more your humility and your awe begins to grow and you find yourself worshiping. You track down the question to every, answer to every question you have and it will always be a thirst you cannot quench. Worship is the place where you learn to rest. Knowledge can puff up, and people who are subtly self-righteous, you find that they are increasingly joyless and dry and barren and loveless. That's why there needs to be a ministry to people who graduate from seminary, and all of you need to pray your hearts out for Nathan Duke as you go through seminary, because they call it cemetery for a reason, because by the time that you're done, you wonder, where did my faith go? Go. And so, we shouldn't be people who are lifeless and joyless. As we learn more about Jesus, we should be melted. And you know where that happens? Happens in community with other people. It happens in the church. It happens by moving toward a community group, not away from a community group. It happens when your marriage has issues, you move toward your community group and you don't stay away because you are, you feel the shame, you bring your shame to the cross. Because every person in this room, if I were to ask who's the greatest sinner, I ought to see several hundred hands go up. Mine would too. He says, love builds up. What is love? 1 John 4, 10 and 12 says, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, as Adrian and John read earlier. Love is defined by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 16, 24, John 15, 17, John 5.42, the origin of love begins in God's initiative. Don't you hear how radically different that definition of love is from what you see in the world? Love is active and self-sacrificial. Love is centered on Christ and that the Son is the focal point of the Father's love. Like an echo in a canyon, love demands a response because when you see the self-sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for you, you can't help but to run to Him in faith and believe. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us, in you. The way that you care for your community group members and you move toward each other is a demonstration of His love being perfected in you. Think of what you would do for the person in this world you love the most. You, like like you would go to no lengths to protect them. That's what Jesus did for you. He went all the way for you. And he died on the cross for you. Love leads you to endure incredible hardship. Like, sacrificial love is rooted in the very person of the one who went further than you could ever go because he was perfect. And he gave it all up for you. And when did Jesus not show you his love? Love is defined by the personal work of Jesus and by faith in his work on the cross for you. Jesus transfers you from the position of an orphan, from a slave to sin, to being a child of God, to being his. You are a son and daughter of the triune God. And God is love, as John says. You're brought into this amazing Trinitarian fellowship of love, which is comprised of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't need your praises. He didn't need your, he didn't need you at all. Out of the overflow of his love, he created you to magnify his character and glory and grace and grandeur, and he's invited you to magnify his grace. So the question is, and matters where scripture doesn't speak and where our conscience is free, We are those who are to be led by love, not a sentimentality, not a fluffy love, a love that's centered on the finished work of Jesus that's anchored into the cross and therefore is strong. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you hear what Paul is saying? He is shifting the footing of the Corinthian church off of knowledge and on to love. And Paul says in verse 7, "Being whose conscience being weak and defiled. And, and, and the pagans in Paul's day they, they, who became Christians, they still, they still feared that somehow that the, pagan, that the pagan gods would come after them if they didn't pay homage to them. Even though they knew in their minds that these idols aren't even really idols. They're nothing. They're powerless. But they had this deep, ensconced cultural fear that they're still coming after them. Just like some of you, you still struggle with tremendously with comfort. Because before you were a Christian, you enjoyed the pleasures of comfort, even as I do. And when you become a Christian, you struggle so much with being generous because it's like, I don't want to lose my comfort. But like, that has no power over you. Jesus is your security. Do you believe that? And notice that even though these Christians who were previously pagan, who have come to faith... Who have this deep sculpt- cultural struggle with these idols, this food that's been offered to idols? Paul, he could say to these weak Christians, Grow up. Like, they're not even, we all know that those idols don't mean anything. Just, dude, just work it out. Forget it. And we're gonna throw a party tomorrow night and we're gonna have a whole bunch of pagan food. Come get over it. He doesn't say that, does he? He talks to the Christian who is the strong one in this case, that was the Jew. The Jew, who knows that these pagan idols are not anything. And he says to the Jew, no, you who are strong, bear with your brother in weakness. Be considerate of him. And it's, it's amazing to me that Paul would say, even though this person's theology, though they're a Christian, their theology is terrible. Paul says their conscience is defiled, but he still commands the stronger Christian to change their behavior in order to not allow the weaker Christian to be led astray. Are you with me? Okay. In Romans 14, it's the exact opposite situation. It's food, still food, but it's not offered to idols. It's food that has been um, offered in temple sacrifices. Same idea, in Jewish temple sacrifices. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it is the Jews who are the strong ones who know that pagan idols are nothing. But in Romans 14, it's the Gentiles who are the strong ones because the Jews are caught up in their cultural trappings of eating food that has been sacrificed to the Mosaic uh, uh, and rituals of the law. And so both for Jews in 1 Corinthians 8 and the strong ones, the Gentiles in Romans chapter 14, God speaks to the strong in both cases and says, hey, be patient with your weaker brother. Have patience with them. And I wonder if you have patience with your weaker brother. The greatest obstacle to apply this principle is, is not our knowledge, but it's our self-righteousness. And there are those Christians in the world who just want to flaunt their liberty. And by doing so, they, they defile the conscience of their brother in a way that is harmful to them. It says that they might be destroyed. It's a, it's a Greek word that means that they, they might be spiritually harmed. And, and for us, like, do you make decisions, even the smallest decisions, with the telescope of God's word and his grace, thinking about the other person? And I, and I, don't, I don't mean you walk around always concerned, well, will they perceive me as a sinner and will they, will they fall? No, like, you've got to be human, normal. But what I am saying is that there are certain situations in life when you need to not think about yourself first. You need to think about the other person and how is what I'm going to do going to affect the people who are watching me? And am I also demonstrating love. So let's take Jesus' example of eating with the tax collectors and sinners, right? If Jesus were going to apply this principle, you would think that Jesus would not eat with tax collectors and sinners because the Pharisees, the weaker brother, would see him and they might fall into sin. But that wasn't the issue in that case. The Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus at all. And it was the tax collectors and sinners who actually did. And so Jesus runs to them and he eats with them. However misperceived he may have been by the religious world, Jesus is acting toward love in a matter where his conscience is free. Of course we're going to eat and drink and be merry together. Why? Because I want you to see how much Jesus loves you. And we're going to deepen our fellowship together. When when Peter, um, uh, you know when, when uh, you know Peter, and uh, when Paul confronted Peter to his face in Galatians chapter two, you remember the situation. You know Peter is eating with the Jews, and um, or he's eating with the Gentiles, and he and he sees the Jews, and he pulls back. Right, and Paul goes to Peter and he says, Peter, what you are doing is not right, brother. You are not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. You're being a hypocrite because you're afraid of these people who are going to see you. Be who you are. Teach them. So, my point is that we should always be thinking about the dynamics of the gospel when we make practical decisions. And that it's not knowledge that's always going to provide you with the insight on how to act. It is love. And therefore, it is messy And two of you will not always act the same way, although the principle may drive you both toward different behaviors. It's very important that we recognize this as a church. Politics. Same motive. People may vote for different candidates. Some of you, in some cases, may choose to go and to support your cousin at a wedding that he is having because he's initiating a relationship that is beyond the bounds of God's design. And you may choose to go... Some of you may choose to go to the reception, but not to the wedding, because at the wedding you're saying, I stand to commit this covenant before the Lord. It is not always easy. Some of you may choose to stay home altogether. And you've got to be gracious with each other to, to how to navigate that relationship. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? To quote Paul Delorier. In my own life, I have to think about my own a sense of self-righteousness, which runs so deep. Like when I became a Christian, I um, just, I just, there's a radical change in me. And I can remember the first time that I had a friend of mine who told me about the time that they had, um, they had uh, they had sinned because they sexually messed up. And I remember the self-righteousness in my heart, looking down my nose at them, pretending that I loved them and judging them in the whole time. It was brutal. And the moralistic um, propping up of reputation all throughout high school into college, and it wasn't really until my last couple years in college that grace hit me like a freight train, (laughs) that I um, wasn't, um, I wanted to go to medical school, and it crossed, you know, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. I didn't really love what a doctor did. I hated it but I just felt forced to do it because that's just what you did. I, people expected me to do it. And that kind of self-righteousness, um, by the grace of God, was beaten out of me. And I still deal with it every day. Like in our church, I want you guys to like me. That's a self-righteousness that will lead me astray. And so when repentance of sin comes to our service, what I'm thinking of is, Lord, help me be aware of my self-righteousness. And so the question for you is like, what are you doing with the Lord Jesus? Are you using Jesus to just reinforce your own sense of self-righteousness? Are you doing things that make your brother stumble? Well, I know that I'm free to drink a beer. Well, I'm gonna do it. Well, why are you doing it next to a brother who struggles with it? Or if you're with a guy who is just so fearful, why wouldn't you help them see that it's okay? You're saved by grace and that's not a sin. You see the delicate balance? If there was a balance beam that I could get, I would have gotten it and preached the whole sermon on a balance beam because it's very difficult to not fall off the one side to legalism or licentiousness on the other. In matters where conscience is free, love, not knowledge, must lead. Let me just give you some practical steps to work through if you're in the situation where you're thinking about a, a situation and you don't know where to go. First is prayer. Have you prayed about it? Sounds like a Sunday school answer, doesn't it? But have you done it? Second, have you searched God's Word? Third, have you explored your own self righteousnesses? What are the cultural things that are preventing you here? Where is your own self righteousness grown deep? Where do you think you're better than others? Or have you talked to your community group about it or brought in friends who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit to process it together? And fifth, have you asked one of the elders to pray with, over you, for you? We'd love to do that. Notice what he says. He says that when you sin against your brother, verse 12, you are wounding their conscience when it's weak, and in so doing, you sin against Christ. Christ. Think about Paul on the Damascus Road when he was called and and Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? When Paul persecuted the Christians, he was persecuting Jesus. When we sin against each other, we are sinning against Christ, which is why there's no unimportant person in this room. And when you see somebody, you see the beautiful picture and work of Jesus, and you want to be tender with their conscience, and you want to be loving toward them. And as you grow in your knowledge, grow indeed in your knowledge. But may it also deepen your love for your brother and for the Lord. And so in this text, Paul is saying, If food makes my brother stumble, I will be a vegetarian. That's a sacrifice. I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So I'm not going to answer the question for you that you've asked, that you've, you've written down, because I, 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 Scripture doesn't directly teach to it, and, and, and love carves us out in different ways. But what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you, would you please pursue that question? Would you please pray? Would you please search God's word? Would you please explore your own self-righteousnesses when it comes to that? And if you want to talk to me more about this after the service, I'm glad to help you work through it. There's a ton of examples I'm thinking of that I don't have time to talk about. But we've got to be a church where we constantly come around God's Word again and again and again and love. Paul didn't give us 1 Corinthians 13, the knowledge chapter. He says, love. He says, and it's amazing that he says in the first part, he says that love puffs up and you have knowledge. What is amazing, if you love God, you would think that he would say, you'll have more knowledge. But he says, no, the amazing thing is to be known by God, that you're known by him. And isn't it remarkable that the one who knew all things and was himself the agent of creation, verse six, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He led with love over knowledge when He laid down His life for you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be people who lead with love, not sentimentality, but a love that is anchored in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And would you help us to be a church that is quick to repent of our self-righteousnesses because we need grace all the days of our life. And Father, would you give us the ability to be aware of our weaker brother and to love them well and to not look down our nose at other people because of knowledge, but to walk alongside them and encourage them lest their conscience be defiled. So Lord, give us gospel dexterity, to let the gospel shape our behavior in matters where scripture doesn't directly address, to use your word not as a magnifying glass, but as a telescope to see how massively big your love for us is, and take us to the cross, Father. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.